Summer is here, and that means it's time for extra family read-alouds, beach reads, and earning that free pizza from the local library. The Cersei Press is here to help with four new titles. First, we're excited to offer you our first fully illustrated children's book. Learn the Latin alphabet, common verbs associated with speaking, and the Latin names of 24 nouns in ABK Latine. In this beautifully illustrated alphabet book, each letter of the Latin alphabet is paired with an animal that makes the same sound, so even parents with no knowledge of Latin can easily read this book with their children. While your young ones are learning Latin, curl up with a cup of tea and enter King Arthur's court with your older children in Legends of the Round Table. This carefully curated collection of Arthurian legends were chosen for their celebration of chivalry, honor, nobility, and beauty. In addition to the tales, you will find discussion questions for further contemplation. And when you get some time to yourself, contemplate the true, good, and beautiful with Josh Gibbs in his new book, Love What Lasts. In today's world, almost nothing lasts. Books and films that are wildly popular one year are forgotten by the next. Some things do last, though. 200 years later, we are still listening to Beethoven. 1,600 years later, we are still reading Augustine. In Love What Lasts, Joshua Gibbs offers readers a wide-angle view of contemporary culture, explains how we got here, and invites readers to reconsider the role which old books, old music, and old films might play in their lives and the lives of their families. And for those parents and teachers who just can't spend their summer reading without prepping for the fall, the Circe Press is excited to announce a new book, by C. Scott and David V. Hicks. The tyrant Julius Caesar, as told by Plutarch and Shakespeare. The Hicks brothers bring their experience translating and annotating Plutarch in The Statesman and the Lawgivers for this unique look at one of history's most divisive and interesting figures. Starting with their highly readable translation of Plutarch's Life of Caesar and the wealth of insights provided by their thorough annotations, maps, and diagrams, the Hicks then turn their attention to Shakespeare's Julius Caesar. This annotated text of the play is unique comparing Shakespeare's rendition of Caesar's life to Plutarch's, noting his sources, and considering the Elizabethan story in light of its classical origins. Not confined to literature, history, linguistics, or philosophy, this work bridges all these disciplines, making it an exemplary example of the study of humanities. ABK Latine, Love at Last, and Legends of the Roundtable are available for purchase now. The tyrant is pre-order, meaning you can claim yours at a discounted price for a limited time. To get these books and many more Cersei titles, head to CerseiInstitute.org backslash books. Welcome to Overdue Classics, the podcast for all the books you've been meaning to read. We are back for our second episode of Herodotus, book one. I'm Brandon LeBlanc, and I'm joined again by Patty and Alex Bianco. How are y'all today? Good. Doing well. Okay. Is that time of year where we're all scattering and regrouping and scattering and regrouping, going to events around the country but uh, it's good to see you guys again this afternoon as we mentioned on the first episode we're we're just doing book one of Herodotus this uh this set of podcasts uh so we've broken that up according to the the numbering system that's kind of uh, been developed for Herodotus last week we did through uh part one through part 72 uh and this week we did 73 up through 144 so if you're trying to follow along with home that's where we are if you haven't finished that, then hit pause and come back. Uh, Alec is going to hop in this time and, and start us out with our our summary, although the summary of this book, as we've noted last time, tends to diverge quite a bit on side trails. So it's tougher than most. Take it away. Yeah, yeah. So last time we left off, uh, Croesus had gotten his vision or prophecy from the Oracle that he would spell a mighty empire. And so he interprets that as 
he'll be able to conquer conquer the Persians in Sardis. So he takes his men, but as he arrives there, he has another, he has a dream, or no, he sees it, I think, for real, where all these snakes appear, and then they come up into the city, and then the horses that are grazing come and eat all of the snakes. So he takes them to his men to get an interpretation from that. And they tell him that, I can't remember, there's like two visions here. And I think they really gave him an immediate answer to that. Well, anyways, so he continues the battle and Herodotus takes a moment to talk about the Lydians and how they're excellent cavalrymen. But then the enemies, which are... I'm just going to interrupt myself right now and say uh, there's so many different names. These are the Persians. Here. So we're at the Persians. Yes, this is the Persians. But I'm getting confused because there's Phokea and our Midis, Medes, and so many different people. Yes. Um, but he's attacking the Persians. And they outsmart him because they realize that horses don't like camels, don't like the smell, don't like the look of them. And so they come attack them with... Camels, which naturally drives off all the horses, and so the Lydians' advantage there was rendered useless. But they're not cowards, so they hop off and fight anyways on foot, but that doesn't go so well, and they end up losing, and losing that battle. And then they continue to battle. He stops to talk about the Argives and the Spartans for a bit, because they are also battling. Um, and the Argives lose to the Spartans. And then we come back to the Sardis, and they're continuing to fight and losing terribly, and the Persians are beating them. But the Persian Cyr leader, Cyrus, doesn't want um, Croesus killed. But there's one of these Persians is about to strike Croesus down, not knowing who he is, until his... And this came out of nowhere for me. Apparently, Croesus' son is standing there, who's dumb, can't speak. And this is the first time he ever speaks to say, stop, you're going to kill Croesus. And then uh, Herodotus says that he retained the power of speech for the rest of his life. <laughs> so that's pretty neat. <laughs> um, but all it did was me meant that they would be captured. And so the Persians, Cyrus, captures Croesus and his son, I believe, and others, and they put them on a pyre to burn them. And it's at this moment when Croesus is getting ready to be burned to death, when he remembers the words, the story that Solon told him about how you don't know if you're happy until you die. And so he exclaims the name of Solon three times at, before he dies. And this alerts the Persians. And so Cyrus hears this and is wondering what he's talking about. And so he has interpreters figure out what's going on. And Croesus doesn't really want to talk about it, but they keep asking him. And so finally, Croesus relents and talks to him about his encounter with Solon. And Cyrus is 
touched by this, moved by this, and so wants to order them to put the flames out and not have them killed. But I guess the flames couldn't be put out, and so they keep going. And then, but at this point, Croesus realizes that Cyrus is going to take mercy on him. So then he cries out to Apollo, and it was a clear, sunny day. But then a storm rolls in, and the water comes down and puts extinguishes the fire, thus saving Croesus and the Lydian boys' lives. And so then Cyrus takes him and makes him a servant. And he, I guess he stays with him, but he allows Cyrus to, or he allows Croesus to do certain things. And so Croesus sends, you know, these treasures and things to different parts of Greece. Um, and he also goes and sends people to the Oracle of Delphi and brings the chains that he was um, imprisoned with and asks the God, because he blames the God for Apollo for his failure. But then they tell his servants that he completely misinterpreted because he never went back to ask a second time, which apparently when you go to an oracle, you got to go at least twice <laughs> to make sure you're <laughs> interpreting it correctly. Because they say, you're going to fellow mighty empire, but they never went back and asked which empire. Uh, and it was his own empire, of course, that he, that he felled, not, not the Persians. Um, and then I believe after that, we transition to, he talks, Herodotus talks a little bit about the, the country of Lydia. Um, he makes some remarks about the geography and their customs that they invented games and they eventually become the Tyrrhenians. And then after that, he begins talking about the story of Cyrus. So how he came to power. And so there were a lot of different, I would suppose we'd call them, you know, Middle Eastern, but sort of West Asian countries, um, the Assyrians and the Medes. And it starts with a Median named Diochis, who kind of starts consolidating power in these, these lands. Um, ends up bringing them all together under one, he and his sons, under one empire, I guess, which eventually was called the Persian Empire, I believe. And then it tells the story of Cyrus's birth, and he was born to the daughter of Astyages. And Astyages also has some weird dreams about his daughter, that she urinated a lot um, and she had vines growing out of her <laughs> private parts. And he takes them to his interpreters who say that these are bad omens. So he has his daughter married off to some Persian guy who had quiet habits. And <laughs> then when she finds out that, or when Astyages finds out that she's going to be giving birth, he sends for the child to be taken because he's worried that the dreams mean that he's he'll be betrayed or conquered. And so he has he sent, comes for a servant, a steward, Harpagus, to take the child and kill it. But Harpagus doesn't want to bear the guilt of killing a child. 
And so he gives it to, I believe, a shepherd um, out in some out in the wild to dispose of the child. And he tells him exactly how to do it, to leave the child exposed to the elements for a few days and watch over it to make sure that it perishes. And so the shepherd takes the child to his wife and sees the princely clothes that it's wearing. And, but at that moment, his wife had just given birth to um, a stillborn baby. And so the wife pleads with him and says, just swap them. Give them the fake, the dead, or the, not fake, but give them my dead baby, put it in the clothes, expose it to the elements, and we'll keep the live one and raise it on their own. And so the husband agrees to that. And then they do that. And I think all is well for, what is it, about 10 years or so? Mm-hmm. And then his identity is not known. Herodotus refers to him as Cyrus, but that's not his name yet. Um, but then Cyrus is Cyrus, not yet known, is playing with other boys in the city, and he beats one of them with a whip savagely. And then the um, the father's, you know, ticked off about this, and so he goes to the to Astyages and tells him about this, and so they call the boy forward. And Astyages asks him what's going on. And the boy, Cyrus, says, well, we were playing and they all elected me the, the king and they all obeyed my orders except for him. And because he would not obey, I beat him. And now he does obey me. And Astyages <laughs> notices that he does not look like his uh, shepherd father, but rather looks like himself and begins to realize that he's about the age when his the child should have died. And so he calls his servant, or he calls the shepherd for it. And the shepherd doesn't say anything, says that it's his own. And then he's about to be tortured. And so he finally reveals and tells him the whole story of how he got the child. And so Astagis realizes that it is indeed his own grandson. So he brings his steward, Harpagus, forward who was supposed to do it, asks him the story. Arpagus tells him the truth from his perspective that he had given it over to the shepherd to be killed. And Astyages, I don't think, really says anything to him, but then he hosts a dinner and he has Arpagus's son killed and cooked. And he feeds everybody at the banquet roast mutton, except for Arpagus, who feeds him his own son. Yeah. Except he keeps the hands and feet and head on a separate platter. And then after Harpagus is eaten to his full, he brings the platter forward and shows him. And then Harpagus, interestingly, does not react to it, but says, may the will of the king be done. And yeah. then that is all I really remember from... Well, I can pick up, uh, you know, Harpagus is pretty smart, um, takes it in stride. Because um, uh, then I guess gets convinced that, okay, the, the threat's gone. He, he was made king by these kids and that he talks to, the, to his, to his, the Magi again or whatever and asks them and like, oh yeah, that, that counts. That's what it That's what it was all about. That's what all that dreaming was about. It's fulfilled now. So he's not really a threat anymore. 
Um, so he sends him sends Cyrus back off to live with his mom and father back in Persia. And Harpagus is is willing to wait and plot and and uh and stir the pot. So he um he reaches out to well some of the other nobles and says, Hey, how about we overthrow this guy? He kind of isn't a great king and reaches out to Cyrus and is like, Listen, we should make you the king. Um if you can rally, if you can get the Persians, you know, we'll defect and fight with you guys and take over. So Cyrus uh agrees and um and he, you know, kind of convinces his fellow Persians. Um it's pre- kind of again, he's pretty clever himself. He has them come together and he spends all day making them work really hard one day, and then the next day, um just feasting and enjoying themselves and he's like which of these two days do you do you prefer and they're like well the first day we felt like slaves and that was terrible obviously and the second day was lots of fun and he's like yeah this is how you're living your life as slaves to uh to this other kingdom basically so um so how about we don't do that (laughs) how about you come with me and we get to feast all the time and we we be in charge so they 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 were they kind of says they beat him as a new champion. They wanted to free themselves. And so um, he sends a word back to Hipparchus and, and all these things, this is what we're going to do. And, uh, and so they go to war and sure enough, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the Median army defect and go fight with the Persians. And then after Astagis is captured, um, because Harpagus kind of comes to him and is like, I hope you enjoy your slavery. Uh, kind of is ready to get back at him for feeding his son, but Astyages tells him he's an idiot because he could have, if you if this is what he if he wanted revenge, he could have taken the throne for himself or at the very least set up another uh, Mead uh, uh, Median to to be in charge. But now he's turned it over to the Persians, and they'll be his own people will be enslaved basically or early second class uh, citizens within Persia. And and sure enough, that's kind of how things go for the. For the people around uh, Persia, and he gives us some interesting information about the Persians that they um, they they don't do a lot of they they don't build temples. They do their sacrificing kind of out in fields, personally within with someone there to read incantations over it. Um, they also adapt uh, adopt a lot of things uh, from other cultures they like. So they find something they like, they just kind of take it for their own. The clothing of one group, the the armor of the Egyptians, the um, um, some other things they've learned from the Greeks. We don't really need to get into <laughs> on a podcast, um, but uh, that's kind of how they they go. But they but then they their customs are to you know kind of establish status between two people when they meet um, by based on how they greet. Uh, uh, kiss on the lips or equals cheeks one is more than the other um and then if it's really different one will actually kind of fall before the other one um and everything is like concentric circle circles for them the closer you are to persia the more they respect you so like the farther you get out within their empire or and beyond the, the lower class you are which i thought was kind of interesting and then they take like a couple things very seriously horsemanship archery and telling the truth um that's basically all they're training their sons in uh, from from six on, um, lying is like the worst thing you can you can do. And so, 
that extends into some other things like they don't like uh being in debt or like um so so a lot of this last section which kind of we're kind of getting some background on the on the persians um and then he flips back i again apologize to you guys in our audience the the divisions i made were not made with with great care they were made by by number and so he flips back to the lydians and the um and the ionians and back to the greeks basically and just starts to tell us a little bit about them and their divisions um at this at this time uh including groups that of the ionians that call themselves ionians and are kind of have the same worship at the same main temple the panionium and then those that don't uh which includes athens and some of the other cities um and at this time he said he says that the ionians were kind of the weakest people group around uh politically and militarily so some of the others didn't want to associate themselves as being ionians even though they were i guess by practice or whatever it might be um and the last place i left this was really not pertinent at all at the moment because we don't know what's going to happen but uh the the five city country that used to be the sixth city country they kicked one of the cities out because they offended the gods so apollo that's kind of where we left off so i mean probably we can ignore a little bit of that last part this time around but i thought we could discuss uh be interesting to discuss kind of how things worked out for uh croesus which really left off last time and then uh this introduction to the persian like a little more depth into the persian so i thought it was interesting um that it brought back that question that alec proposed last week and i was trying to remember the exact wording you had but something about um not necessarily the good life, but who's happy, right? Mm. The happiness and the prosperity. And Herodotus himself opening it and saying, you know, that he wanted to present the good, the great and wonderful deeds, but also the causes of all these wars that they're having. Uh, so that was interesting that we get to see Croesus and basically all these reasons that are leading towards his demise. <laughs> so that helped me follow it along a little bit until we got to the the very end there where it's just talking about the Persians and then it <laughs> moves on. But I felt like it was, I was a little more connected this time to the story part of it and hearing how that went with the different Kings and then the callback to Solon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause he starts the book letting us know this is, I want to explain to you why or part of it's like how why we're at war with the persians right why the greeks and the persians are at odds is one of the main purposes for the whole book um but yeah the call back to solon and his wisdom i thought was really interesting and then that that cyrus seems to have the wisdom to keep croesus around as like a like an advisor almost right like, like it's pretty um out of the norm i think right for the king a king to keep his foe around once he conquers him is like to learn from him. Um, and he seems willing to kind of listen to some of the things Croesus has to tell him. It's really interesting. Yeah. He seems to have some wisdom, but at times or most of the times anyway, when he's trying to interpret the oracles, he does so very badly. <laughs> kind of yeah. seems to be his issue. Yeah, his help for Cyrus is more on the practical side, not on the um, not on the understanding how things work side with the gods. But 
It was interesting that it started with an eclipse, this first part, um, which seems like to be important as well as the snakes and the mm-hmm. and the horses. At least, you know, it called back to the Shakespeare play, right? <laughs> Julius Caesar when they they had all the, the trouble there before the the deed was done there. Yeah, it's always interesting to see um where where these authors are drawing things on. You know, we talk a little bit about Oh, obviously we have that new book out now when it comes to Caesar that talks about pulling on, on Plutarch's life of Caesar for the Shakespeare play, but also these other, these other things, right? The, this is kind of always seeing these things as portents or possible portents of, of the future, but then often not knowing exactly how to interpret them. Um, and that, as Alec pointed out, that seems to be, you know, Early on, and already in book one, we're seeing right interpretation of the signs is um, it's pretty key because he gets bad interpretations twice. Uh, well, actually, Croesus does, and then we get it again with Astyages. I don't know how to say his name, but the same thing: getting bad interpretations of the of the portents. I did like Alec. You mentioned that the dumb son all of a sudden just shows up. But also, like, so does the prophecy. Like, oh, by the way, there was this other prophecy also that said this. I like how he just kind of, sometimes he gives it to us in advance. And then it's like, uh, also, there was this other prophecy. And it got fulfilled at this moment. And it it just brings us back to his kind of rabbit trail style. Which I like a lot. Yeah, I wonder, I have to wonder if he just wrote this all in one sitting. And... <laughs> <laughs> and then just shipped it off to the printers. <laughs> Papyrus ain't cheap. I can't do another draft, man. I was, oh. <laughs> I'll just put this in here real quick. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Well, I mean, it'd probably be good to, to look at like what he says he's doing at the very beginning, um, with and see like how is this how is this uh, fulfilling his purpose? Right, that setting forth history at the time. That time may not draw the color from what man has brought into being, nor those great and wonderful deeds manifest both by the by Greeks and barbarians fail of the report, and together with all this, the reason why they fought one another. So, I mean, what is he giving us in this section on that on that side on those kind of aims for what he's doing with this text? I thought it was interesting that it, it seems to be revenge led a lot of mm. of the wars and so you have these families that have been intertwined for generations and so Croesus is going after more land and he wants to punish Cyrus on behalf of how we say Astyages But then you have this darkness that kind of throws everybody off. And then they, so then they try to make some ties within that. It's a, and I thought it was interesting that it said on um, 1.75 that they knew that treaties didn't, do not tend to remain in effect without the force of strong obligations. So they were asking marriage and swearing oaths. Mm. And so they knew that nothing would remain without these obligations. 
Yeah, it, it, and maybe it was all self-gain too, or like the misinterpretations of the oracles that, you know, they just one after the other. But as we saw, like it, be, it was divine will that these things happened because he had to actually it, it says in there that he had to fulfill right mm-hmm. what was was said back when Gyges had this whole thing started back in book one that he you know killed his master and he was going to have to atone in four generations i think is what it said mm-hmm. i don't know if that answers your question but <laughs> no i i'm glad you brought that up because it goes back to something we talked about last week where Herodotus seems to be threading this line between um, completely um, uh, eradicating the mythos from his history and just being just giving us myth, right? He's not giving us myth; he's giving us history, but he doesn't completely abandon this this element of, um, or at least he just reports what was said, right? There, the 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 Oracle of Delphi said this had to be fulfilled. No one can escape the fates, not even the gods. Um, and 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 they're answering at that point. Croesus, um kind of mocking of what of why he was uh, abandoned by the gods, and they're like, actually, you weren't. Just had to be fulfilled. It was put off two years longer than it might have been, and also that god Apollo quench the fire so you didn't die like the, you you weren't abandoned by the gods but by, by the gods you were that you've honored your whole life um but that doesn't mean you can escape fate either um and it's interesting that he sets up that this is the beginning of the fighting is crocius kind of misinterpretation and desire for more things um so what we talked about we saw that part last week but then it gives us this whole other story for what brings the Persians to power to begin with, which is again misinterpretation of signs, uh, a little bit of a, a power grab on multiple peoples. Um, like it, it's interesting to me that Estiagis doesn't have a male heir, right? He has, has the daughter, and this is the grandson, but he's still concerned by the the oracle uh, the, that says. Uh, the prophecy that says that his son's gonna, his grandson's gonna sit on his throne. Well, what, like, why wouldn't that? Why would that be such a problem, right? If he had just kind of come through the inheritance in the median, then they wouldn't have necessarily lost the kingdom of the Persians, right? Or if this other guy, whose own lust for power or, or revenge, you know, had just taken it for himself. But there's all these different actions that cause the Persians to rise in the accounting he's giving us. Um, and now these two things are these two bigger powers, the Persians and the Lydians came into conflict. We go back and forth a lot with him. He takes us back. Okay. I told you this whole side of the story. Now I'm going to get back to this side, but, but it's lots of great deeds or, or great and terrible deeds in some cases. Right. So. Yeah. It was helpful to hear the background of how these Kings came about but then keeping it all straight and <laughs> going back of how, when and how it all happened. Um, I, I did think that was interesting that Croesus, right? He's saved by the pyre 
right? Just for recounting that story, right? And Cyrus mm-hmm. understands that. Well, I'm human too. And then, and how they even knew that Cyrus and his backstory that at 10 years old, that he was a king, like he had some sort of attributes, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know that it was necessarily whipping a boy who disobeyed because there's lots of kids who play, you know, <laughs> king and they don't necessarily whip <laughs> their other friends when they're playing. But something, right, that made him have a presence that they were like, oh, he's more royal than letting on that he would see that, right? That he would have that connection. And Croesus was like, oh, well, I'm, I'm going to take the, my one, I'll get a gift. I get like my one wish, my one phone call, and I'm going to go back to Delphi and I'm going to say, here are the shackles. You did it wrong. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but then, you know, after they explain, like, no, you just, this is what you misinterpreted. He he accepted that. He confessed. He said, yes, you're right. I was wrong. And so that's what's always confusing to me, that they have these knee-jerk reactions of, okay, I'm mad, and I'm going to feed you your son because you didn't do what I said to do 10 years ago. But then they can have these times where they, you know, repent. Um, that I, I'm, It's hard for me to to, <laughs> to make it clear. Yeah, we ran into some of that when we were talking about um, the Oedipus cycle, too. Uh, when I was in that with Andrea and Matt, it was just these kind of things were like, you need to ask a second question. It was the same thing we talked about. You need to ask a second question, like how this is supposed to play out when you're trying to avoid something. Um, and then being defiant and then being penitent. Um, there's usually still some suffering that's going on there. Like, right? Chris is still a captive. He's not the king anymore. But he gets to keep his life. Um, and you know, Oedipus had some of the same things happen to him through the course of the cycle of the plays. But um, this interaction between gods and fate and man can be tough to kind of pin down uh, for us, I think. And even for them, it seems like you get different views on whether the fate can be, uh, to what extent can you actually could you actually get away from the fate? Um, because in both cases, they're like, well, you should have asked a better question, a second question. And maybe had he asked the second question, he wouldn't have gone to war, right? Um, but then they say, but yeah, you, but you were fated to, for this to come in because you're the fifth generation from your grandfather who, uh, it's like, it doesn't speak well of the grandfather or the, or the queen. The, it's like, they they did what they shouldn't have done, even though the king did what he shouldn't have done before to get himself killed. So it's the oracles it me. not very forgiving. It reminded me of that proverb um, when it, when it talks about like he didn't ask any questions. That in Proverbs twenty five, where it says the glory of God is to conceal a thing, but the honor of kings is to search out a matter. Hmm. And maybe that is their duty. That's where he failed, right? It's you. You need to go back and question, right? There's there's going to be things that are concealed hmm. from you. And he he probably uh, I think it described somebody as arrogant, but there's just this arrogance, right? That they 
they know everything, that they're interpreting it correctly. Just like the mule we talked about last time. Yeah. <laughs> and, that Cyrus, and then it reveals Cyrus is that mule because he was born of different people, different social stations. You know, not taking it literally that there's, <laughs> there's a mule on the, that's going to become king. Yeah, it seems like somewhere along the way, the, the, these peoples would have learned to understand metaphor. They seem to make a lot of mistakes based on taking things literally. Or in the we, case of the Magi, taking it not literally enough, because they say, what did they say? Oh, Cyrus, <laughs> that boy, he's, he's, he was already called a king when they were playing. So it's it's all good. You can just send him back to Persia and nothing will happen. Yeah, that was so odd to me. It's like he's going to kill um, Herapagas' son, but yet he's going to leave his grandson alive because the Magi say, well, he was playing a game. He was already called a king, so it was fulfilled. <laughs> but it didn't work out for them in the end. He went back and <laughs> got revenge on them as well. Even though it was his idea. Right. <laughs> Gotta blame somebody. So this is I mean, I'm sure it's not the only place, but it's the first place I've heard that that I've heard the Magi refer to outside of uh outside of scripture. So it's interesting to see me, for me to see them in this kind of they're like a whole people group uh, almost in here. Um I, I think maybe by Christ's time they were more of like a remnant that the pre, like this kind of priestly remnant or whatever, but to see the even back then they were really involved with with understanding signs and things, but without the right interpretation. So which I thought was interesting. Um and then he has not put several of them to death. Yeah, same for me. I hadn't heard of the Magi outside of the Nativity story. But this the whole story of Cyrus, it it reminded me a lot of Moses and his story with them trying to, you know, he was called to be killed and he was hid and by the um, you know, there's the cleverness of the wife, like figuring out how to to protect him. Mm -hmm. And then the whole story, the rumor, right, of of his birth gets circulated because the the wife, her name translated in Greek is a female dog. And so, you know, he was out in the wilderness, suckled by this female dog. And <laughs> yeah. That was one of those ones there where he's like, yeah, I don't buy that part, but uh this is how that really got started. Um, so I like those little asides. Like, as far as I'm concerned, there was like the other one happened when it's Croesus is trying to cross rivers. Like, they went on the bridges that were already there, and like some people will try and tell you the bridges weren't there yet, and all this. I'm like, it's like, eh, I don't know about that. That's where you try to take some of this mythos out a little bit, right? At the same time, while leaving, while leaving space for the gods and the fates um, in his history, it's pretty fascinating. I was trying to remember Thales. Wasn't he the philosopher who thought that life was in water? Like everything had to do with water? I, don't, I might be I wrong. Think so. That sounds right. Yeah. But I just thought that was interesting that he's the one that comes in the camp and he divides the water 
Mm. If he's the one that felt like, you know, or that he thought his belief, philosophy, maybe is a way to throw some philosophy in there as well. Um, and Herodotus is like, eh, I don't know if I believe all that. <laughs> right, right. I think the point you made earlier about Guy G's having to atone for what he did was really interesting with what Astyagi says to Arpagus after Arpagus whips up his plan to have Cyrus take over. Um, and I think you mentioned it, Brandon, but that he calls him you know, stupid because he could have taken the throne from himself, but worse because you've now condemned the Medes to a worse people, mm -hmm. um, the Persians. And all, you know, all because of that one supper, which right. obviously, <laughs> at first reading, I was like, well, yeah, you did a really horrible thing to him, making him eat his son. <laughs> but I still think that his point is kind of interesting. It's, I mean, Astyagis has a good point. Like, as as bad as what he did to Harpagus was, does that mean, is it worth it to throw your entire people under a, a chain? Right. Um, yeah, certainly something to think about with all of these politically motivated people. Yeah, I mean, I know we're only reading book one, but it'll be interesting to see over time how the repercussions of these decisions play out in histories of peoples, right? That are how long they're enslaved, how long they're under a chain. Um, in particular for the uh, Hellenistic world, the, the Persians, you know, are, are pretty big, a pretty big part of that history. So, um, and then obviously afterwards, it's not like Medes. It's like, I don't think, that that empire that that kingdom really comes back as being ruling in the same kind of way so i think you'd mentioned them creating games um there was a section where they talk about the lydians i thought it was interesting that all the daughters the common daughters anyway work as prostitutes <laughs> and then they helped you know create the tomb of uh, ali Aliatus, which I think is Greece's grandfather, if I'm remembering right. But they um, were the first to use gold and silver coins. And they were the first real retailers of goods that they didn't produce. Mm. So, yeah. like marketplace. But then they, you know, they invented dice. So then they have lots and, and they have this famine during this one king. And they're like, okay, half of you are going to leave. Half of you are going to stay. And the, and the half that leave actually end up having a sovereign nation and being free. Where the other half that stayed, obviously, are they're overtaken with the Persians. But you know, all that led to them being kept in captivity. Mm-hmm by chance yeah it was interesting that they oh it, it's he points out that like a lot of the things 
we've kind of, a tr- or at least even people of his time are attributing to like the Greeks, you know, coins and trade and, you know, this kind mm-hmm. of mercantile stuff. It was, was really all, all the Lydians, but long before the rest of the, the Greek nation states. So that led to, I think he, it was another thing where he goes talking about the Assyrians and the, the later, um, I don't know how to say his name, Deacris or something like that. But he was this judge and he, he was ambitious for power. Like many of these Kings, he wanted to attain power, but he did it in a very manipulative way where he was this very fair judge to get all this high praise and just waited out his time mm-hmm. and said, Oh, I'm not getting anything out of this. I'm going to stop. And then, and then of course he has his friends after the robbery and everything starts again and they don't have anybody to judge it fairly has his friends say, Hey, we should probably have a ruler or a King. And so then it just thought it was funny. It's like kind of a little checklist of how to be a tyrant. (laughs) He sets up like, you know, make yourself highly praised. And then he becomes King because of it. And the first thing he says, I'm going to build, I need a residence with bodyguards. And so he builds himself a palace. And then he, he says, I need a, a great city. So he builds himself a capital. And he says, okay, now build the fortifications, but just for my dwelling, you guys need to live outside the walls. It's just for me. And then talked about the different circle fortifications. And then no one can meet the king. You can't even look him in the eye. You can't laugh. You can't spit. Like he's making all these like ceremonies and um, formalities, but I, I don't know. I, in my mind, he was like the first lawyer because it talks about him. <laughs> like he wouldn't see anybody anymore. He asked for written uh, suits again that the people wanted him to judge, and then he would send it out. Yeah, that was interesting. See, but it was like, but he understood right that. It will, like, almost not just for him, but like for the kings that, to come after that they have to be separated out from their peer group always. So they can't ever, so that in the minds of the people, they, this king is something other than them, right? Like it's a different, they're of a different kind. And otherwise they'd just be like dis- disgruntled and this peer ruling over them. It was really interesting the way he did that, but, it, the, but he got there by being a just judge to begin with. Right. But then set up this system that would keep him separate from the, from everyone else. I couldn't help but picture the, um, when he was talking about the city with the, just the different rings and it was even painted and then gilded different colors. Yeah. I, could, I couldn't help but think about, um, Oh, well, the, the city of men in, in Gondor in, uh, in Lord of the Rings. Cause it's like that, those tiered, you know, walls uh, mm-hmm. of protection so but then you have but then you know well maybe maybe tolkien was drawing on his herodotus because you get this king or not this king technically but this um what do you call it the 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 uh steward that's in denethor who's goes nuts right living up in the middle part of that tower keeping himself separate from for everybody and looking into the Palantir, but it's the same kind of building or same kind of structure of city with the ringed mm. ring tiers, walls. I was thinking of the Olympic rings. 
Like there's an orange one and a blue one. Oh, and that's funny. <laughs> nice. I didn't. I didn't read it the way you did. It sounded like you had a poor perspective on the keys, but when I was reading it, I thought that he was one of the few kings we've read about who's actually like a decent, <laughs> decent ruler. Um, he was able to bring about justice in a complete chaotic, chaotic environment. And Herodotus says he continued justly and with integrity. And it wasn't until his son who decided to expand his power that sort of yeah. caused more, you know, problems for the. He makes a point. He makes a point of saying that he just rules over his city. Like he doesn't make any attempts to take on more territory, which is interesting. That is that is unique among everybody that he's brought up so far. No, I it think what he did odd. is good, but it, yeah. it's just that balance, right, of not attaining too much power. Where it seems like his descendants after him couldn't find that balance that he had. But the way Herodotus described him to me at first, yeah, maybe I need to reread it. But it seemed like he didn't have the best of intentions, but he did make it more orderly. He was hmm. able to rule. Does yours call him a tyrant or a monarch? Pretty sure tyrant. Okay. I know that some, and this could be helpful for our listeners, but I know some translations use tyrant, but it doesn't necessarily have the same connotation as we Americans because yeah, we've almost solely reserved that word for bad Kings. So I'll make a shameless plug that if you buy the tyrant by the Hicks that we just released, mm. um, in David Hicks' introduction to that book, he does a really good job kind of breaking this down because, and they're typically looking at with that, you know, how did Plutarch view Caesar versus how did Shakespeare view Caesar from different vantage points in history and different meanings of that word. Um, so it's, I can't do the essay justice, but that's the introductory introduction to that book, but it's fantastic. It's worth, it's worth the price of admission just for the introduction. But, um, my, my copy did have a footnote about that actually in the last section we read, but I can't find it very quickly. Um, my understanding is that the word tyrant just meant originally just meant someone who came to power, not through hereditary means. Right. So, it, either they conquered or they were elected like this guy was they didn't inherit the, they didn't inherit the throne um and so it's it just that that was its original meaning and over time it came to take on the other because probably because most those that got the throne without but not by hereditary means took it by force right and so once they take it by force they have to keep it by force and that maybe lends itself to becoming tyrannical in the way in the sense that we use it now mm -hmm. um but not it's not as cut and dry for the certainly not for the for the greeks and, and even the romans probably I which mean, is not to say he's not but it's just yeah. that your translation might be skewing you potentially i might have inferred tyrant it said he was a shrewd man 
named Deoges, son of Phaeortes, mm. had conceived a passionate ambition to rule. And this is a story of how he went about fulfilling it. So maybe, uh, yes, I may have a little lens there of like comparing like to Julius Caesar and <laughs> his ambition. He was too ambitious. <laughs> That's you, so you spending too much time with your husband and Alex's father, the, the, your uh, hatred of the word ambition, but. <laughs> Or his yeah, says ambition. he was a, a man of great ability and ambitious for power. So I think my translator, David Green, um, is purposely avoiding translating the word, any of these words in, that might be tyrannous in the, in the original to tyrant. This is all the way back in section 20. Um, he's, he's, uh, he's talking about, uh, but the Malaysians add this besides that Periander, the son of Sipsilus, sent a messenger to Thrasbulus, who was then Prince of Miletus. And then that, that Prince of Miletus has a footnote that says, the Greek here reads tyrant of Miletus. For Herodotus, for Herodotus, tyrant means simply a ruler, sometimes despotic and dictatorial, sometimes exerting power inside an existing constitutional system, but having no traditional and rarely any hereditary claim on it. He is a figure very similar to the present-day rulers of some South American states. But tyrant does not necessarily mean to Herodotus, and perhaps not to most of his contemporaries, a ruler who was harsh or cruel, although later in the 5th century that sense is almost invariably implied. Under these circumstances, I have usually translated the Greek word tyrannos by the neutral and vague word prince, as it might occur in Machiavelli. Um, occasionally it becomes a search substitute for the rendering despot. So maybe a brown Herodotus time it's starting to take the take the meaning or the late later in that century, maybe saying, but um, that's a good note because it can it can mess up our reading of these ancient texts sometimes. Um, I mean even even Oedipus Rex, right, is that's Oedipus King, but it's Oedipus Tyrannus in the in the Greek, right? Mm-hmm. So It'd be a cool thing to do um, for students working through Herodotus to make a chart of all the kings, but then rank them as, like, pick those words and see how in their life. Oh, yeah. You know, the sound, the soul unhappiness chart, but then maybe you could also have, <laughs> like, a tyrant to prince to, I don't know, however you want to. So, I don't so know what the, a virtuous king would be called. Uh, so for the soul unhappiness chart, you have to wait till they you get to the end of each king's life, right? And then right. put them put them on the list somewhere, rank him. I like it, and then uh, rank the tyrants from from prince to despot. Mm-hmm, exactly. <laughs> oh, exactly. Good. It's good. Start a chart in the office. Awesome. <laughs> well, we've only got one more section. Uh, to finish out book one, seems like it's going by pretty quick, and we'll do a Q and A obviously after that. But uh, I'm kind of curious. Um, for me, I'm kind of curious to kind of see where he wraps book one. That these mm-hmm. are the, I think the books are more the breaks that he he put in as he went through the numbering system. We get you know comes from later scholars, but I'm I'm really kind of curious to kind of see where he kind of comes to a stopping point uh, for book one. Um, anything y'all are looking for in this last section in particular? Bring it back to the Greeks. That's what I want to figure out. Yeah. 
it's good i thought the aside to the the archives and spartans was interesting not because it was an interesting story to read i thought why are you telling me about this right now mm. um so this, it was just seems totally random but you know he does seem to have a good job of pulling these in later right you know these threads that appear random in the moment suddenly you know come back like even yeah. solon's adventure with um Croesus, I wasn't expect. I wasn't anticipating that. I just thought, right. oh, cool story. And then next thing I know, oh my gosh, he's saying his name on his death hire. Uh, <laughs> kind of a big deal. Right. <laughs> he could have given me a heads up. <laughs> yeah. this. So anyways, I'm wondering if we're going to come back. That's good. Greeks and see how these little stories kind of connect. How much of that is context for like, just like, because his audience would have known, hey, this is that same t- period of time when Sparta and Argives were, mm-hmm. this conflict was going on. Like that's kind of giving you, giving his audience kind of a timeline for it, right? Which is even harder for us that they might have known. And how much of it's like, no, nah, we're going to come back to that. And I'm going to talk about, because I mean, at some point, right, if we're talking about the Persians, if we're talking about the Greeks versus the Persians, we've got to talk about the, the, the Greeks being more pulled together as a, as a group, right? So interesting to see how that plays in or if it does if he brings that back you're right yeah i liked seeing those connections and so i'd like to see that too in the next in the last book as well as i've been noticing more the when they talk about fortunate events or fortune and so i just i'm looking for that and how that ties back to the original question of Mm. fortune uh the fortunate man happiness and prosperity well we'll pick up next week with uh was it 145 and and finish out uh, it goes to section 215 is the last section in book one um and see how this all plays out see where the see where he leaves us in book one so um thanks for being here again guys this week it's good good chat with you guys thank you thanks well, thank you, everybody out there, for pulling the book down off the shelf and dusting it off and cracking it open to join us for this episode of Overdue Classics. Join us next week when we wrap up book one of Herodotus Histories. You can send your questions or comments to podcast at searchinstitute.org or join us on the uh, searchingcircle.so and post some questions there. And be sure to check out the other shows on the Searchy Podcast Network. 